Thank you that you are steadfast, that you are our rock, you are our tower of refuge and strength, that we can run to you, that we can find hope, that those who are weary can find rest in you. And we pray, Father, today that you would display your faithfulness in each one of our lives. We pray that you would take your word as it is proclaimed, and we pray, Father, that you would use it to make us strong, strong in you, strong in the Lord, as we're commanded to be. Uh, But Lord, we love you, and we worship you this morning. Fix our eyes upon you. Help us to trust you, all your promises. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Morning, you can have a seat. God's good, amen? Grab your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 6. We are finishing up Ephesians this week. I love this book. Kind of sad that we're done with it. But there's more good stuff in God's Word as well. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. And I'm going to read through uh, the end of the chapter. I'm going to be reading the entire chapter, although we'll primarily be focused on verses 10 through 20. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible love incorruptible. Let's pray one more time. God, thanks for today. Open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. We are looking to you right now in these moments for help. And we thank you that you are near and that you save all those who call upon you. And we call upon you right now for your help in these moments. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, um, much of this book, especially the first three chapters, has been, um, I would argue one way you could look at it is, it's, it's been this beautiful diamond or crown jewel that Paul has been putting on display. And I believe it was um, Charles Spurgeon who 
said that the gospel is like a diamond and you can hold it up and look at it from different angles and see different glimmers of, of truth. And the book of Ephesians, I would argue, is also very much like that. It's, it's like a diamond and it's, and it's beautiful and much of it causes us to worship just simply by beholding it, by, by just looking at it and looking at those different glimmers of truth and beauty. Um, and as we've talked much about it, it causes us to worship. Um, but I think that part of what Paul does here today, if I can just continue to tease out kind of that, that imagery or that analogy, in this section or this passage as he closes up the letter, um, is that he wants us to understand that the gospel is not just a beautiful jewel that we behold and look at within kind of a glass display case, um, but it is armor, the gospel is armor that we are to put on so that we can do battle with the enemy of our souls. It is, it's quite moving, I think, and beautiful to me as well that in all likelihood, as Paul wrote this letter, um, as you'll have noticed, he's mentioned several times throughout the letter, he mentions it again here uh, in this passage, uh, that he is in chains as he writes this. As you come to the end of the book of Acts, Paul is on house arrest and he is chained to a Roman soldier. And um, almost all commentators believe that it was during this time that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. And it's powerful to think that um, as Paul gives us this beautiful metaphor of this armor that we're to put on, that in all likelihood he was at the time chained to a Roman guard who was uh, probably um, clad in this type of uh, armor physically that Paul um, speaks of here, but yet Paul takes that, that thing that uh, God had allowed in his life and that the enemy was working in his life to, to keep him in bondage, to keep him in chains, to probably keep him discouraged. And Paul takes that, that very imagery of bondage and, and, he, and he uses it to give the church one of the most beautiful metaphors uh, that is found anywhere in the scripture of the gospel and of the, the strength that we have, the armor that we have, to be able to, to stand in Christ. And as Paul closes out this letter um, throughout it, he's been very encouraging, and this, and this letter um, is no doubt in encouraging and it's loving, but there's a firmness. There's a firmness. There, there's, there's an exhortation. There's a call that Paul is giving us here. In fact, um, I'm a big believer that every text of Scripture has a mood. Okay? It, has a, it has a mood. Some are more filled with joy, um, some are more filled with hope, uh, and some are a little bit more, more serious. And while it's loving and encouraging, there's a firmness here in Paul's tone. So one of the little exercises I'll do as I'm trying to just, again, week in and week out, just look at the Scripture, and I'm just constantly asking, what does it say? What does it say? What was the author's intent? But one of the things I'll do to kind of look for the action or to get the mood in the text is I'll just go through and I'll just write down and highlight the verbs, okay, the action words within the text. And let me just kind of rapid fire read you the verbs that are given in this passage. Be strong, put on, wrestle, take up, stand, fasten, put on, take up, extinguish, take, pray, keep alert, make supplication, proclaim, declare, speak. Did you catch that? That's all, like, there, there's, a, there's an exhortation here, there's a firmness, there's a, there's a seriousness in Paul's voice that he's calling the church to action. He's calling the church to action. And much of what we'll look at today and that the, the, the passage is made up of is, is are kind of these two descriptions. You have a description of our adversary, and then you have a description of our armor. 
Okay? And we're going to look at that, and they're, and they're given for a reason. But those two descriptions, the description of our adversary and the description of our armor, are, are really null and void. They're pointless if we do not hear the primary exhortation that Paul is calling us to in this passage, and that is to be strong and to stand firm. Or if I could just kind of paraphrase that, fight! Brothers and sisters, we are called to fight in a battle. And if you ignore the battle, it does not mean that you are any less a part of it, it just means that you are ineffective in the battle. We have to be aware of the reality of the gospel and the the spiritual world and the kingdom of God and there's a kingdom of darkness and they are at war. Now there is a sense in which, as we've looked over and over again through this passage, that, that the war has been won. Jesus said when he died on the cross, his very last words, it is finished. But God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom and in his divine purposes has called us to live in this season until he comes back and until we are finally glorified. This, 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 this season, this time here, this church age of 2,000 years where he is working out this process of sanctification in us. And one of the things in his almighty wisdom and goodness and love for us, for our good and also for his glory, is that he calls us to stand and to fight. And we, 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 have, to, we have to embrace that. In, if a soldier's in battle and bullets are flying, and the enemy is upon them. You can just close your eyes and pretend like it's not happening, but that does not change the reality that the bullets are still flying. Amen? We, we, have, to, we have to stand. And so here at the beginning, the first thing that I just simply want us to, to see um, before we get into the details, and I say this because I think like when we come to this passage, you know, it's, again, it's this beautiful metaphor, the belt of truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and we're, we're going to look at all that, but, but don't get caught up in that imagery, don't get caught up in that metaphor and miss the primary exhortation that if you're not standing, if we're not fighting, if we're not willing to stand firm, then it doesn't matter how great our armor is. It's an attitude thing that Paul is calling for here. Look at verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. <laughs> Put on the whole armor of God. And listen, so that you may be able to stand. Look down at verses 13 and 14. Therefore, he, said, he repeats the same thing. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Then verse 14, stand therefore. Stand, 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 stand. Stand up, be strong. Fight, don't run. It's the opposite of retreating. That we don't turn around and run away. And, and guys, this, this attitude, we, before we look at anything else, we've got to understand and embrace um, this attitude that Paul is calling for. Uh, if I could give another illustration, this uh, the past week, um, the younger boys, my younger boys, elementary age boys, uh, finished up bitty ball at Highland. This was Jordy's, a second grader. This was Jordy's first year playing basketball. If you've ever watched second and third graders playing basketball, uh, it, it doesn't always totally resemble basketball, all right? Um, it's much more akin to trying to herd kittens. And <laughs> so, one of the things that, 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 that's cute, though, is that, like, even, like, when they're at the foul line or something, um, and they're getting ready to stand, it's like some of the kids will stand there with their hands in their pockets, 
in their little shorts, and they're like just kind of waiting, you know. And um, uh, but so, but also one of the first things that um, that they'll teach them, and, and you know, there's several times where I would go like early, just a little bit early to pick up the boys afterwards or whatever, and and the guys were doing this drill with the little second graders. And if you've ever played basketball, this is like one of the most you know fundamental things you learn at, uh, at at a young age. Is the kids would be standing there, and the coach or somebody would yell, "Stance!" And they would jump down. And I'm not going to do it because I don't want to pull anything. But um, but they would you know they would jump down. They slap the floor and then they go like this, right? Stance. And so they say, "Okay, okay, get down." They would make sure that they're down in a state defensive position so they could you know be would be ready to guard. And then they'd be standing there again, they go, stance, and they'd get down, slap the floor, and get their hands up like, like they're ready. What are, what are they teaching them? They're, 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 they're teaching them that if they're going to be effective in playing, they've got to be down in a stance, first and foremost, before you even, before you even dribble or before you're going to shoot or whatever. You've got to learn to be in a position of readiness, of readiness. And again, I know I'm being repetitive here at the beginning, but folks, the, the question on the table this morning throughout this passage that we've got to get before we get anything else is, is as God's people, are we down in a stance or are we standing around with our hands in our pockets? Just thinking that that's going to get it done. Standing around with our hands in our pockets as Christians is not going to get it done. I don't care. You do not have to be a pastor. You do not have to be in full-time ministry. You do not have to work for a nonprofit organization. You do not have to be a missionary. Every single Christian is called to live in a stance of readiness to, to stand firm. Um, and I pray that as we walk throughout this this morning, uh, God will continue to drive that uh, into our hearts. And, and to be thinking about you know, certain areas of your life where maybe you don't stand firm. Because sometimes we, we stand firm maybe in our ministry or our vocation or what God has called us to do, but maybe we're not standing firm in our marriage. Maybe we're not standing firm in our parenting. Maybe we're not standing firm in certain compartments of our life. And that's, that's also true. And I pray that the Lord would search each one of our hearts, including my own this morning, as we walk through this. And so, as I said, this, this is the primary exhortation, but now Paul's going to roll into, he's going to roll into the description of our adversary, or our enemy, and then into the description um, of our armor. Now, the reason he goes on here and describes the enemy is because this, this description of our adversary, if we're understanding it correctly, uh, it, should, it should motivate us. This description of the enemy serves as motivation in Paul's argument here, that we would be ready uh, and embrace this exhortation to stand firm. Because if you think that just standing around with your hands in your pockets as a Christian is going to get it done um, when we're facing the enemy that we're facing, it's not going to happen. It's absolutely not going to happen. And so Paul goes on here to describe our adversary. Let's look at that. End of verse 11, he, he says, that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil literally means slander. The devil and Satan are the two primary um, descriptions or names for Satan. In the Bible, he has many. Uh, he's a roaring lion. He's an angel of light. He's a great dragon in the book of Revelation. Lucifer, which means shining one, bright one. Uh, but here he's called the devil. The devil means slander, 
Satan means adversary. He's the adversary of God and therefore the adversary of God's, of God's people. Um, but here he's referred to as the devil, as, as the slanderer. And this idea of scheme here, okay, this, this word for where Paul says at the end of verse 11, that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is, our, our enemy, guys, he's, he's smart. There's a sense in which he, he's insane. And he's insane, he's, he's, he's mad. He's full of madness in the sense that you're crazy if you think you can wage war against an almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God and think you're going to win, okay? So he's crazy in that sense. But in his schemes, in his game plan, uh, the word here for schemes is literally uh, methodia in the Greek. It's, it's from where we get the word method. It's that he's, he's methodical. He's not just running around out there all crazy. He's watching your life. He knows the patterns of your life. He wants to trip you up. He's very sneaky and deliberate in the ways that he wants to work his plan in order to steal, kill, and destroy as Jesus said of him in John chapter 10, that he wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he goes on and he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness. Now, I'll get to those descriptions in just a second, but just this little phrase here at the beginning of verse 12, I I really want us to hear this and to understand this. Um, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Can you just say that with me? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. One more time. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Some Christians need to be reminded just that we have to fight, right? We have to fight, as I've been saying. But others of us need to be reminded who we fight. And who we fight is not flesh and blood. That's not our our ultimate battle. Our ultimate battle are against these rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, um, and these spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And, and I, and I want to sit here for a second because I, I'm actually very burdened by this reality and by this truth in the season in which we're in, not just as, as people at Mercy Hill, but I think as, as a country, as a nation, um, as a, as, a, as a church in America or in, or in the West, because there's, there's a lot of tension in the air right now, politically and you know, with everything that's going on with COVID and the lockdowns. And I mean, it's, 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 it's a mess. There's a lot. And you've had one of the most contentious presidential elections you know, that we've had, at least in my lifetime, um, here you know, last year. Uh, and there's just a lot of tension in the air. And I say all that because there are, there is, there's a lot of evil involved. On all, on all fronts. And, and what I've noticed is, is that I, I'm not, there's, there's part of the church in the West, a part of the church in America, that, yeah, they need to get their hands out of their pockets. They need to be, they need to be willing to fight, okay? But that's not really like, I don't know. The, many of those churches, I don't even know that they're, that they're real churches anyway. But here's my concern for who I, I perceive to be true believers in Christ, is that we're willing to fight, but we need to be willing to fight the right the right enemy and in the right way. He said, guys, our, 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 listen, the problem, if you, if you think you're going to fix the real problem with just politics, that's the wrong battle. That's flesh and blood. The battle 
is against these spiritual beings in the heavenly places. Now, here's what's interesting, and I want to sit in this for a little bit, is that throughout the Bible, um, the spiritual forces of darkness that Paul speaks of here, they're very much tied to political rulers. I want you to hear me here, okay? They're not the political rulers, but throughout, throughout the Bible, there's this connection between political rulers and these spiritual forces. And the, the reason is, is that these spiritual forces, they want to manifest evil in their life. So they are spiritual beings. We're, we're physical and spiritual beings. We're body, soul, spirit. But they want to manifest evil, wickedness, in our lives. And so one of the ways they do this is through political authority. So just, just for example, so you understand where I'm coming from, Okay, is that two of the, the primary descriptions that we have of Satan in the Bible come from Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 19, also Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but if you, if you study those passages, there's almost all commentators and scholars believe that um, while on one level they are describing the kings of Tyre, um, the king of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 28, and also the king of Babylon, in Isaiah chapter 14, they are also describing Satan. Because there's certain things in there that could not be ascribed to an, 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 an earthly king. In, in Daniel, in the book of Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is actually a political figure. He's like third in charge of the entire uh, empire at that point. Okay? Even though he was taken into captivity as a slave. I mentioned this a little bit last week. Um, and Daniel is, yes, there, there's, a, there's a political realm in which he's operating, but Daniel, the reason he's so exemplary for us is because he stands up and he knows that's not where the real battle is. The real battle is in prayer. And throughout the book of Daniel, they, they, they tell him, oh, you, can't, you can't pray anymore. They make that law. He's, he goes back and he continues to pray. He defies those authorities because he has a higher authority. Okay? Now, <laughs> now the point here being is that my, I, my concern for us, and the thing that I really want us to understand, is that um, it's very easy for us as Christians to, to fight this battle, but then to just go all in and fight it and put all of our resources into fighting it politically, or into fighting it in the flesh, if you will, or in the natural. But that's not where the ultimate battle is. And what I mean by this is, wherever evil exists, whether it's, whether it's politically or, or naturally or some sort of injustice in the natural realm of some sort, absolutely, as Christians, we are to be salt and light in the earth. We should stand up against it. We should call evil, evil, and we should work for righteousness. But, but, that is not ultimately how the battle is won. Ultimately, the way that the battle is won by us, is by us going to prayer like Daniel did and by pulling down through prayer these principalities and these powers. Okay? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So that he was feeling the war physically. Again, he's in prison here as he's writing the book of Ephesians. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. God has equipped us, again, throughout the book of Ephesians. Right, the first thing he says in chapter 1 is, is that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, If you look at the end of verse 12, after he lists these, these spiritual forces of evil, it says, in the heavenly places. 
You're like, oh man, these are, these are heavenly beings. They're flying around the heavenly places. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And while on one hand we should be overwhelmed by the supernatural nature of this battle, on the other hand, the book of Ephesians has made it very clear that we're the ones with the home court advantage. Because we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But, but I say this, guys, because I, I, I'm, I'm burdened for us as a church, and again, I'm just I'm the, a, a pastor here at, at Mercy Hill, okay? And I, I want us to fight the right battles the right way. And ultimately, if you read the book of Revelation, the way that we win is not just by taking life, but by laying our lives down. Revelation chapter 12, listen. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, Satan, devil the slanderer, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now listen. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for... They loved not their lives even unto death. How do the saints of God ultimately overcome this great accuser, this great dragon, as he's portrayed in those chapters in Revelation? We love not our lives unto death. I think I mentioned this before. I forget when it was, um, when we were in a gospel a while back. But if you remember Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and Peter's bold declarations of allegiance that he makes. They might all leave you, Lord, but I never will. Everyone else might forsake you, Lord, but I never will. And of course, Jesus tells him, you know, that before the, the rooster crows three times, he's going to deny him. Um, and if you remember, though, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, they come into the garden to get Jesus. And what does Peter do? Peter's no wimp, the natural. He gets out his sword. And he goes, and he swings it at one of the soldiers. And again, I think Peter was going for the kill. Like, I don't think he was so, because remember, he chops off the guy's ear. I don't think he was aiming for the ear. I think he was going to, I mean, he was going to take the guy out. But the guy probably dodges, and it, and it chops off his ear. Remember, and Jesus says, you know, don't do that. <laughs> Basically, and he goes down and heals the guy's ear. Now, here's, here's the point. Is that Peter goes on then later on, and he denies Christ. But here's the deal. Peter was willing to kill for Christ, but he wasn't willing to die for Christ in that moment, right? He's like, I'll, I'll, I'll take this guy out. But where Peter denied him was he wasn't willing to lay down his life in those moments. Now, he was later on at the end. And that's my concern for us, is that we would be a church of pre-resurrection Peter's that are willing to use outward force somehow to fight these battles. And, and, and listen, they're in a, they're, there's a way, there, there are physical battles we need to fight and to stand up against evil where it exists. But if our allegiance is ultimately to the kingdom of God, we ultimately win, folks, not by taking life, but by laying it down. Are you with me? Okay, we got it. One amen. I appreciate it. I'll take it. And we need, to know, we need to know how to do battle. Let's look a little bit more. That was kind of, a, kind of a rabbit trail. But let's look at the names here 
rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, forces. Rulers. Why are they called rulers? They desire to rule you. Authorities. Why are they called authorities? They want to have authority in your life. Cosmic powers. Why are they called that? They want to exercise power over you. Forces. They want to exercise force in your life. That is their desire for us. These cosmic powers over this present darkness and their spiritual forces of evil, darkness and evil. Darkness and evil go hand in hand in the scriptures. What is darkness? It's evil. It's sin. Sin is darkness, and where we continue to walk in sin, we give the enemy authority in our lives. We give him authority in our lives. That's why in the end, the way that we overcome him is by simply walking in righteousness, um, as Paul's going to talk here about in a little bit, but also as we've already seen, um, that we're to clothe ourselves with righteousness and holiness. Remember when we looked at that back in chapter 4? Um, this book is, has been all about the fact that God uh, calls his people to walk righteously and holy as he has presented them with a positional righteousness in him. The thing that the enemy opposes is everything good that God has done. That's what this book has been about. All that God has done. That God has forgiven us, redeemed us, adopted us, he's saved us, he's blessed us, he's reconciled us, he's given us authority, he's washed us, he's cleansed us, and ultimately he has raised us from death to life. And so all those things the enemy is against. He wants to bring condemnation, accusation, guilt, shame, worry, anxiety, fear. These are his fiery darts that Paul's going to talk about here. Um, and again, when I said that the description of the enemy is meant to serve as a motivation, uh, it is because, guys, if we, if we understand how Paul's describing the enemy here, um, it should make us run for the armor. It should make us cling to the armor that God has provided and not stand around with our hands in our pockets. Um, all that the enemy uh, wants to do in our lives is ultimately to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He is more powerful than you or I on our own, apart from Christ. Um, he is the very personification of evil. And yet... At the same time, if we could see him with our physical eyes, we would be tempted to stand in awe of him because he disguises himself as an angel of light. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. Everything is attributed to us we have all become so psychological in our attitude and our thinking. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and of his fiery darts. Again, just ignoring him will not change the reality that he exists and that he wants to take you out. So, in light of this enemy that is much stronger than us and that desires to rule and have authority in our lives, let's look at the armor that God gives us, okay? So, he transitions, therefore, and you'll see this in verse 13, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, in light of the fact that this is our enemy, pretty bad dude, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm, stand therefore, 
and then he goes into the list. There's six elements here. Um, you've got the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes uh, of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Now, we'll look at each one of them individually, but here's, here's the deal. is don't Again, don't miss the forest for the trees. Is that This is a metaphor here, and it's a metaphor basically of the gospel. That all these elements, all, all Paul is saying is, this is the gospel, this is what God has done. Okay, so throughout this book already, <coughs> Paul has spoken of, of, of righteousness and truth and the peace that God provides and of having faith, okay? But all these things are just an image for the gospel, for the good news. It is all that God has done for us through Jesus Christ that we could not do for ourselves, okay? That's what I mean when I say gospel. It's a metaphor for the gospel and all that he's given us. So, and what I mean is don't, don't hold each one of these too rigidly. What's the point of speaking in a metaphor? The point of speaking in a metaphor is to draw us in and to get us to think about the imagery that's being, that's being, des- being described. Now, you could take some of those things out of bounds and you know, make them mean something that they're not. Um, so there are definitely some, some guardrails. But for example, um, in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul says in, in that letter, he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Okay, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, in this passage, it's the breastplate of what? It's the breastplate of righteousness. But over in Thessalonians, he says it's the breastplate of faith and love. And in here in Ephesians, faith is the shield. The point being is that Paul is just giving a general image here of the gospel truths that we are to stand in as we fight the enemy. We, we don't need to get caught up into a bunch of, you know, off in the weeds, uh, spiritual warfare stuff that's outside of the gospel. The gospel is the answer uh, to us standing firm and to being effective in, uh, in spiritual warfare. So let's, let's look at each one of them. First of all, the belt of truth. And again, different commentators take these, take these different ways here. Many people take the truth here to mean uh, the word of God. However, he mentions the word of God as the sword of the spirit later on, although there might be some reality to that. Uh, many people argue that uh, it might be object, just objective truth. So everything that the enemy does, the enemy is, is the father of lies, Jesus said. And so here when he says the belt of truth, and if you, again, this idea of a belt, it went around the waist. They could keep their little sheath uh, for their sword hanging on their belt, they would also, again, back in the day, they would fight in like tunics of some sort. They would kind of tuck up their tunic uh, into there so that they could move more freely. I, I think there's something to the fact that the belt of truth is kind of central on the body. That truth needs to be central in our lives. Um, and I, you know, I won't spend much time on this, but I mean, our, our culture has just gone uh, way off the, off the rails with this uh, in terms of not believing in objective truth. But, in term, but instead, we, we speak of my truth, or, well, this is true for me. That's not truth. Truth is truth is truth is truth is truth, okay? Um, relative truth is, 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 not, is not truth. And so Paul here calls us to stand in the truth um, of who God is, but also truth in the sense of, I think, sincerity and integrity. So when something comes out in somebody's life, that they've been hiding for a long time. What, what do we say sometimes? Sometimes we'll say that person was living a lie, right? Well, that's the opposite of the truth. What do we mean by that, though? That they weren't living lives of integrity. That, guys, we're to stand in the light. We're to live in the light. We're to walk in the truth. And it's to be central to our lives if we're going to combat the enemy and all his lies. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness covers your vital organs, covers your heart, 
Why do we need that protected? Because the enemy wants to take it out. The enemy wants to fire one of his fiery darts right into your heart. And again, the breastplate of righteousness, that God has positionally made us righteous. We have been justified. We have been made right with God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have peace with him. But if we've been made positionally righteous, we should be pursuing practical righteousness. Practical righteousness where we live out of who we are. We live out of our new identity in Christ. This was the whole point back in Ephesians chapter 4 when we, you know, that whole imagery that Paul uses of taking off and putting on. And I use that, 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 that uh, illustration of um, the idea there is that we don't want to put on dirty, filthy clothes after we've just been washed and cleansed. It doesn't make any sense. Why do we want to live unrighteously after we've, been, we've asked God to make us righteous in Christ? That if we pursue practical righteousness, it becomes like a shield. It becomes armor to us against the enemy. Again, if you're living in darkness consistently, that's where the enemy has power. That's where he has authority, is in the darkness. In Ephesians chapter 4, again, what I just was referring to, he says, put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And at times, I just say too, that each one of us, sometimes we, we do commit acts of um, unrighteousness. We sin. And we have this great promise to always run back to the, the positional righteousness that God has provided for us. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, this is a beautiful verse. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, know this, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. You see how this is the good news of the gospel? That even when you sin, even when you fall, we can always run back to the cross. And it's not that we're getting saved again, but we're coming back and we're live, we're, we want to renew our positional righteousness that we have in him. We want to stand in that and live out of that and fight out of that. The third thing he says is the shoes readiness. Shoes of readiness. Um, verse 15, he says, and shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, there might be some reference here to the shoes being ready to go and to share the gospel of peace, but more likely the, the Roman um, soldier would have sandals with like spikes through the bottom of them. They'd, they'd pound nails down through the bottom of them so they could stand firm. It's the idea of a football cleat. And so if you're standing and you're doing battle, and remember, how does he describe us fighting the devil? Um, back in verse 12, we're wrestling it's like a hand-to-hand combat, and you want to have sure footing. What is the sure footing that we have in the midst of the conflict? It's peace. It's peace. That when all sorts of stuff hits the fan in your life, you don't have to go seeking for peace. You should be standing in the peace that God provides. This is why, if I, if I can just make this really practical, Christian, Stop freaking out. Yeah? Stop freaking out. Well, this is happening, and you know, the president said this, and you know, this country's doing this. Stop freaking out. Stand in the gospel of peace with your feet firmly planted. We serve the Prince of Peace, who has all power and all authority, has been given to him in heaven on earth. 
And he sent us. If we're going to be effective, we've got to learn not to just run around and try to you know, spend all our time finding this peace and then getting ourselves together. We should be standing in the peace of the gospel. Um, Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Positional peace. In, in, in fact, in the beginning of all Paul's letters, he even does it in the beginning of Ephesians. In the beginning of all his letters, his greeting is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's not a prayer, it's a declaration. He's not asking for, he's like, grace and peace to you. How, how can he know that he can just freely say that? Peace to you, peace to you, peace to you, peace from God. How can he say that? Because it's always available. It's always right there. We don't have to twist God's arm to bring us peace. The peace is there if we're standing by faith in all that God has done and in his finished work through his son Jesus Christ. The fourth piece, the, the helmet of salvation. The helmet of, of salvation. What's a helmet protect? It protects your mind. Why does our mind need, need protected? Because the enemy wants to destroy it. Again. The enemy wants to destroy the way you think. Again, I already read this, but 1 Thessalonians 5.8, he speaks about the helmet as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That if your mind is not filled with hope in all that God is going to do, not, not only what he has done, but what he's going to do in the future, hope always has a future orientation to it. That if your mind is not filled with hope, if you're constantly doom and gloom and everything, stop it. <laughs> There's hope in Christ. And yes, things can be getting bad outwardly, but we are to be people that have hope. And even, even if, and I know this is extreme, and I'm not just saying this for like shock and awe value, but even if we lose our lives, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain! Do you have that type of hope this morning? It is yours in Christ Jesus. Live like it. The shield of faith. And here he gives a little bit more specific detail. He says, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The Roman shield was, was made out of thick wood and they would wrap it in leather and then they would soak it in water before going into battle. Um, and because flaming darts were a real thing that the enemy, you know, arm, armies would use against each other, and you'd put that thing up and it would extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. And so, when, again, wh what are those accusations? I don't think it's just one thing. I th uh, or, I'm sorry, what are those flaming darts of the enemy? I don't, I don't think it's just one thing. I, it could be fear, it could be temptation, it could be lies, it could be accusation, it could be slander, it could be difficulty, it could be, it could be uh, suffering. As, the, as God allowed the enemy to bring into Job's life, as you read about his life in the book of Job. Um, it could be worry. It could be anxiety. As those things come at you, what do you do? You get your shield of faith. And you put it up. An accusation comes. You're worthless. You'll never be good enough. You put up the shield of faith. In Christ Jesus, I am more than a conqueror. I am God's son. I am God's daughter. Fear comes. You put up the shield of faith. My Savior said to fear not, for he is with me. His rod and his staff, they will comfort me. Now, there, there, there's, an, there, there's an active role that we're to take here, okay? Um, this shield of faith, that like, and, and again, if you notice, there, there's some nuance in the, in the kind of the verbiage here. He says of those first couple, having fastened the belt of truth, having the breastplate of righteousness, um, and having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. But then he says here, take up 
the shield of faith. Take it up. Actively live by faith. When those things, when those thoughts come in your mind, do you take an active role or do you just stand around with your hands in your pockets? Um, <laughs> our small church went through this a couple weeks ago. And one of the things that just, I don't know, as we were walking through it, I, I was just kind of, I was kind of just making fun of it, but, um, but it's true. It's like a lot of Christians, the enemy comes at us, and here's how we fight. We get like a little stone. We, eh, leave me alone. And he comes at me. Go, stop it. That's not going to work. Yeah? But for some reason, we think that, we think that it will. That's not standing firm. That's not taking up the shield of faith. And some of you, like, you, 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 like, you look and you're like, oh, why? God, why you let this happen? He's given you what you need to fight. Do it. Amen? Do it. Um, sorry. Sword, the sword of the, made me laugh, the sword of the spirit. Okay, this is, so here's our one offensive weapon. We'll spend a little bit more time on this. Um, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, very, very important and I think very practical here. Okay, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word here for word is rhema. Okay, we talked about this earlier when we talked about how husbands are to wash their wives with the washing of the water of the word and how it's the spoken word, okay? So logos is the word for written word, rhema is the word for spoken word. This is, very, this is very instructive, okay, in our battle because this is our only offensive weapon. It's referred to as a sword, okay? So that we're to, one of the ways we're to take the enemy out, it is, it is the sword, not of the Eric or the sword of the Joe, it is the sword of the spirit. The spirit of God lives inside of us. Our, our life is one with Christ, but we want to live spirit-filled lives. But here's what it means is that the way that we take the enemy out primarily is through prayer and if you'll notice here he says the sword of the spirit which is the word the rhema of God and then he just rolls right into praying at all times in the spirit praying at all times in the spirit is that if you want to take the enemy out I want to tell you this okay guys you're gonna have to actually say words like whether you're by yourself and you're feeling an attack and maybe you've, you've got your footing and you're putting up the shield of faith, but at some point you're going to have to swing the sword and you're going to have to say, in the name of Jesus, no. You're going to have to speak it out. Now, can we just pray quietly in our hearts? Yes, that's fine, but I'm telling you, that's not always going to cut it. At times we need to speak out loud the truth of the word of God. And the idea here for Rhema is... Uh, um, let, let me give you a, a good definition. This is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which Dallas Theological Seminary put out, which, by the way, just as a side note, is a very conservative, is a very conservative theological uh, group. But listen to even what they say about this. The rhema here refers to the preached word or an utterance of God occasioned by the Holy Spirit in the heart. Believers need this sword to combat the enemy's assault much as Christ did three times when he was tempted. And so you remember Jesus being tempted in the wilderness and he rebuked the devil and he actually quoted scripture. Okay, so here, here's, if I can just bring this really down onto the ground, I wouldn't say this is the only thing that it looks like or the only occasion when it occurs. Because again, this, this, all Christians are um, called to do this in, at, at different times, okay, as, as, the, as, the, uh, as the battle um, calls for. But 
Uh, This happens every week when we gather for prayer on Wednesday mornings and Sunday mornings. Is every week there is something that, now hear, hear me here, God hears all of our prayers, but almost every single week there is a time when at least one person or or several people will pray something from the Word of God, from the Logos of God, that the Spirit of God, like, I don't know how else to say it, you just, you know that you know that that is the Spirit leading them to pray that in that moment. And the Spirit is wielding the, the Logos via the Rhema, our spoken word, to tear down strongholds of the enemy. Okay? So hear me, this isn't, this isn't some sort of thing where we need to um, get some sort of word uh, you know, directly from the Lord. We, we, we've got it all here in the Logos, the written Word of God, but the Spirit will take the Logos and wants it to become a rhema, a spoken word, and we use that to swing our sword and tear the enemy. Are, are you following me? Am I making sense? So when, here's the deal. When you're in a group prayer meeting or when you're just by yourself, sometimes people in a group They'll, they, they don't feel comfortable praying. And I understand, you know, if you're not, not used to that. But what will happen sometimes is you, you quench the Spirit by not praying what the Spirit wants to pray because what the Spirit's trying to get you to do is to wield your sword and to tear down something in the heavenly realms that you might not, that you might not see. Are you with me? You following me on that? So pray. Pray. And when he gives you something specific to pray, pray it. The Spirit is doing battle through you. With all prayer and supplication, to that end, he goes on and he just talks more about prayer. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. So who, how are we to wield this? So we're, we're to pray it for ourselves. We're to pray it for our brothers and sisters on the mission field. We're to pray it for people like Paul. What are we to pray? He says that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I, I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so there's the description <coughs> of our armor and how we are to use it. I want to look at one more thing and then we'll wrap up, I promise, okay? Sorry, I love the book of Ephesians. I knew I was going to go long today. Just hang with me, all right? Um, but finally, just look at these last couple verses because these are not throwaway verses. Verses 21 through 24. Paul mentions, uh, again, it's very practically that Tychicus is probably the one delivering the letter. Um, he's going to tell them how Paul's doing um, and stuff. But I want you to look at this last verse, the very last verse of the letter, verse 24. He says, Grace be with you and all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? That we would love him with love incorruptible. And worship team, why don't you come up and we'll begin to wrap up just to make sure that I don't talk too long here, okay? But with love incorruptible. It's interesting because we have more information on the church at Ephesus, the Ephesian church who this letter is written to, obviously, than any other church in the New Testament. And one of the things we find towards the end of the New Testament age, after this letter is written to them, is we find these seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And the first church that is mentioned is the church at Ephesus. And here's what Jesus says to that church. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, 
and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So this church has a lot of good things that are commendable, that Christ is commending them for. But he says this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Or some English translations say, you have forsaken your first love. And I find that interesting when you wed that with verse 24 here at the end of Paul's letter, where years earlier, Paul would have, would have given him this exhortation. Love Jesus with a love that's incorruptible. And the reason I say that, and the reason I believe it ties in with everything else we've talked about today, is folks, what does the enemy ultimately want to do in our lives? He wants to corrupt our love, first and foremost for Jesus Christ, and secondly for each other. That's what he wants to steal. That's what he wants to kill. That's what he wants to destroy. And I want us to hear this, not in fear or doom and gloom, but yet as a cautionary tale. That this church in Ephesus that God used so mightily in the New Testament and in the early church, they had the Apostle Paul writing them letters, right? How awesome would that have been? And their love became corrupted. And as we close this morning, not just the service, but as we kind of come to the close of this book and everything that we've talked about over the last 12 weeks, what I want to ask of you this morning is to with, just honestly, and I pray with the Holy Spirit's help, search your heart and ask him right now, has your love for him in some way become corrupted? Jesus said that in the last days, knowledge was going to increase, but that the love of many was going to grow cold. I think that's what we see in our culture. I think that's what we see in the day in which we live is that a lot of Christians still checking the right doctrinal boxes or maybe having all the armor of God you know, understood and memorized. We, can, you know, we could draw a picture of this soldier and, and what he looked like. That's not what it's about. Is your love for God burning hot this morning? And if it's not, then here's what you need to do. You need to come back and you need to remind yourself again of the gospel. And of how hot his love burns for you. And of how much he loves you. And of, how much he, and of how much he cares for you. And guys, I don't want us to end up getting stuck with the flaming darts of the enemy. And become a church that has our love corrupted um, by any of his schemes. Amen? He's called us to stand and fight. Let me pray. Father, we love you. Thanks for your word. God, we just ask that uh, as we sing this final song that your Holy Spirit would search our hearts. That you'd help us to trust you. And Father, we want to go forward in humility and in your strength, not our own, with a love that's incorruptible. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who feels like they've walked in and they've got a bunch of fiery darts of the enemy just sticking in their back or in their neck or in their chest or in their leg. I, I just pray that you'd remove those.
whether it be fear, worry, anxiety, bitterness, unforgiveness, I pray you'd be their healer this morning. And I pray that you'd remove those fiery darts and that you'd help them to stand firm. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being your people. Thank you for, being the, for the privilege of being your sons and your daughters, your bride, your body, your family, but also your army. We love you, Lord. Use us for your purposes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Stand with me.